spukhafte Fernwirkungen. Did I say that? Spooky action at a distance? Yeah. Oh, dear. What is that? What does that mean? It's one of the early bits of weirdness people noticed in quantum mechanics, something in particular that disturbed Einstein. It's these very strange long-distance correlations where you can have a resource. Uh, Dr. Walden and I are sitting together, and we, we share a couple qubits. Say, for example, then we go... Uh, I go out to the Andromeda galaxy, he goes to the other side of the Milky Way, and the statistical behavior of his qubit and my qubit are, are weirdly correlated in ways that are much different than if we split any other resource. There's sort of an over-correlation. And it's almost like my qubit and his qubit were talking to each other faster than the speed of light. But they're not, and that is impossible. But there's correlations that make it seem like that is true statistically. So Einstein first used the term Spukhafte Fernwirkungen. It became sort of a, a slogan associated with the, the weirdness of quantum mechanics. Yeah, Einstein didn't really like quantum mechanics, and so he uh, did a lot of research trying to disprove it and uh, instead made tremendous contributions to, to the field by, <laughs> yes. by, by showing that these weird things actually are true. <laughs> Well, hello and welcome back to the Informatics Cafe. I'm your host, Mike Nitardi, and I'm so pleased and proud to have with me here in the cafe today, Dr. James Walden. He's a PhD in physics, and he is the director of the Center for Information Security here at Northern Kentucky University. And also Dr. Kevin Kirby. He's the dean of the College of Informatics here at Northern Kentucky University. And gentlemen, it's great to have you here in the Informatics Cafe with me. And we're going to be talking about the exciting field of quantum computing. So welcome. Thank you for being here today. Thank you, Mike. It's a pleasure to be here, Mike. Why don't you start off and give us your elevator speech, if there is such a thing, as to what is quantum computing? Well, I'll start with a value judgment. As a computer scientist, I, I think quantum computing is the most interesting thing to happen in computer science since there was computer science. Wow. Quantum computing is computing using a device that maintains its internal state uh, basically has an indeterminate state. Right. right. You have an undisturbed system, and you have computation going on, but as soon as you open the box to look at it, it sort of collapses. Okay. You can't tell anything about its internal state until you observe it. There's this interesting power that comes from quantum mechanics. Uh, someone once said that quantum mechanics is what happens when nobody's looking. Observations don't necessarily refer to a human looking at it. Mm -hmm. It's really... If any small particle hits the atoms involved in the quantum computation, that counts as an observation. But the power you get from that in the new understanding of information, we're, we're so used to thinking in computer science of bits, ones and zeros, ons and exactly. off, and building computers out of those principles, to have a whole set of new principles with a little sort of, I don't know, almost supernatural mystery to it. Exactly. It's very compelling. The bottom line is there is the promise that we can do computations amazingly, mind-bogglingly faster than we could have imagined without quantum technology. They can't compute anything that a classical computer can't, but they can do certain tasks uh, much, much faster. That's why it's attracting investors and researchers. Uh, may maybe I should explain what a qubit is. So quantum computers compute using uh, qubits, quantum bits, rather than our traditional bits. So a bit is just a zero or one. 
which can be represented in a lot of different ways physically. So normally in your RAM is uh, represented by the charge in your memory chips inside your computers. And if the charge is a certain level, it's a one. If it's a different level, it's a zero. And it's either one or the other. Uh, so the, the charge could be slightly higher or lower, but basically there's a threshold. If it's above the threshold, it's a one. If it's below the threshold, it's a zero. And it's very clear cut. But qubits can be in a superposition of state. It has a certain chance to be a zero, a certain chance to be a one, and as it interacts with other, other qubits, those probabilities change. And it remains that way until you measure it. Uh, that's called collapsing the wave function. And then you get either a definite zero or a one result. So you can read off the end result. But while you're doing the computation, the qubits are in this probabilistic state, whether they're either a zero or one. The classical statement of that problem in quantum mechanics is Schrodinger's cat, where uh, you rather cruelly seal a cat in a box with a uh, poison that's activated by a radioactive sample. Uh, whether a radioactive sample emits a uh, particle or not is a purely physical probabilistic thing. Um, you can't say it's going to emit it in one second, two seconds, until you observe it. You don't know when that happens. And so the cat in the box is either alive or dead, and you can't tell it without opening the box. And it's not just that the... Uh the cat is alive or dead, right? It's you could flip a coin and say it's alive or dead. And I won't. No, it's 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 it's, it's sort of sort of both at once, and you can detect the difference um, between a cat that's flip a coin alive or fifty percent alive, fifty percent dead. You don't know, or in some way both. You can actually pass them through a certain quantum gate that will give different results depending on whether it's in the spooky superimposed state or not. And that is just. Um, Oh my gosh, it makes you dizzy to think about it. I was going to say. That's why we're yeah, in the business. Exactly Mike. right. Exactly right. <laughs> but the cool thing is that that intermediate state can perform computations extremely faster uh, than classical computers with regular bits can do. That's amazing. My, my second favorite part about qubits is you can't copy them. How many times do you go through a day and hit copy and paste in your document? You can't copy sets of qubits. There's something called a no cloning theorem. Really? Wow. How do you do... Uh, how do you do computing without copying stuff? Um, because it, that's why it's hard. So does that mean that it's hard to replicate? I mean, so if if a lot of a lot of our algorithms, you copy the contents of this variable to this variable. Right. right? You don't even think about it when you write code. Yeah. But you can't actually do it, not reliably. Uh, in quantum computing, there are fundamental limits. Yeah, and it would also have impacts on debugging a program. So, so normally when you're debugging, you're looking at the intermediate internal state and trying to figure out what went wrong. But, of course, if you look at the internal state of a quantum computer, it collapses uh, and uh, you no longer have the internal state you wanted to observe because, you, <laughs> because exactly that you looked at it. The computation stops at that point and can't be restarted. Wow, wow. So essentially we're at the cusp of something a transformative that is exciting because it's like a new birth of computer science almost. It is, yeah. Yeah, we're both saying yes to that. It sounds hypey, but I think it's true. So I think we're going to have to go back down to my level. <laughs> so Dr. Wilder, why don't you go ahead and give us a little bit about your background? Okay, I got interested in uh, quantum computing when I heard about it in uh, graduate school when Peter Shore was uh, giving his uh, talk tour at universities about Shore's algorithm, which 
provides a way on a quantum computer to factor uh, an integer into its prime factors. So uh, you can express any integer as a number of prime numbers multiplied together. It's very fast, of course, to get the product. You just multiply two numbers together. But to go backwards and take a large number and figure out what two prime numbers were multiplied to get it is very difficult. And before that, no one had an argument to why quantum computing could be better or faster than classical computing. But he invented the first algorithm for that. You might think that's an abstract mathematical problem to factor a number. It's like, who cares? But all of our e-commerce software downloads and such are validated by digital signatures. And the algorithm for that depends on it being slow to factor a number. And so if quantum computing becomes feasible, we have to find a new system for securing everything on the internet. (laughs) What about your role in, in physics and your background in physics? Does that play anything? Quantum computing certainly back in the 20th century, was really more of a physics problem than a computer science problem. There weren't any of the traditional uh, tools, principles, and such that really um, feel more part of the computing field. Uh, That's changed since then. Uh, But still, there's... um, you sort of need a basic understanding of quantum mechanics, which most computer science uh, students don't take. (laughs) Right, no, that makes sense. To understand how it works. There are uh, efforts to do things like quantum programming languages and such to hide the physics behind it. But right now in the field, you really have to have an understanding of quantum physics as well as computation. And actually, um, Dr. Walden should point out that not only does he have a PhD in particle physics from Carnegie Mellon, he actually worked for Intel. So he's done both the Q and the C yeah. in quantum computing. This is very cool. I, this is me as dean. No, no, I, know, no, no I, I love it. No, it's great. It's great. So, so how, did, how did you get interested in it? Other than being obviously the dean of the College of Informatics, and it is the, the newest, hottest thing since computer science got started. Yeah, well, my interest in physics is sort of strange. I had a really interesting uh, ninth grade astronomy teacher uh, in Detroit. He handed me a, a book called The Tao of Physics. You, you might remember it. And it had a spread in the middle of the book, just two images. And one was a black and white image. I think it was the Upanishads written in Sanskrit. And the other one was a long, it was like a field Grangian or something from particle physics. And there are two things that it, well, Certainly as a 14-year-old, I had no clue, but they were beautiful and mysterious. So I said, I want to know what what those mean. Mm -hmm. And so I was attracted to physics because it was weird and mysterious and incomprehensible. I wasn't particularly good at it. I went on to get a uh, a PhD in computer science, but I was always interested in natural computation, biological computation. But I did manage to do a cognate in physics for my PhD, which means very, very narrow and actually, I did specialize in quantum mechanics. So later, when quantum computing came around, it was just, oh, I love this stuff. I want to teach it. That I want to hire awesome. people who can do it. So like I said, I usually don't talk about myself, but I'll give you a little bit of background. I'm a, a strong liberal arts kind of a guy, even though I got my degree in finance, so I like numbers, but I don't do a lot of computations. I'm a lawyer. My experience with computers is just sitting in front of them and having them do whatever I want them to do, or at least what I ask them to do or try to get right. them to do. <laughs> To what extent will quantum computing change computing right now as we know it? Depends what you mean by right now. If you mean technology, uh, 
Very little. I mean, a lot of the literature compares quantum computing right now to the the Wright Flyer in, what was it, 1903, the Wright Brothers plane. Okay. But it's almost like, yes, you see this sad little plane making a hop, but the potential is so big, people are already developing flight reservation systems That's and modern airports with That's boarding gates and so on, um, because the promise is still there. The ideas about quantum algorithms date from uh, the 90s. Dr. Walden was talking about a few classic ones. But they were very much pencil and paper. But people have started to, to build this stuff. It's a few to several years out, but progress is so fast. And if they manage to build things at a certain scale, yes, codes will be broken. Optimization problems will be solved super, super fast. Logistics and supply chain problems are a classic one now. So within the horizon of a few years, it probably will be transformative. So does that mean that the way that my mobile phone works, <laughs> the way that my laptop works, the way that our internet works today, is that going to change if quantum computing lives up to you know, all of this promise that we're discussing? Yeah, you won't have a quantum computer on your desktop. The, the physics requirement of the supercooling and such uh, just won't work at either a price or a physical scale that you would want one in your office. But they'll be more like sort of a, an alternative type of supercomputer to solve really complex problems. So okay. now where we have all these high-performance computing clusters and centers, uh, probably there will be quantum computers added to that. What I'm thinking in my mind then is it's almost like a back to the future in the sense of if you go through the history of computers, you go through these larger computers down to the smallest computers, and you know, that's we're so proud to get there. But what it sounds like to me is that there's going to be these special computer rooms again that have these quantum computers, whereas the rest of us aren't going to have access to that. Is that accurate? Perhaps, but that's, that's normal now, right? I mean, yes, we do have a server room right here in Griffin Hall in the College of Informatics, which looks cool and Star Trek-like. But a lot of our students are uh, using, say, Amazon Web Services or other places where their actual computation is going on, for example, in our machine learning course. So, in fact, right now, through Amazon Web Services, I can write some code here in Griffin Hall and Python and uh, spin it up on a quantum computer somewhere. So you can potentially get access to quantum computers just like you could through the cloud right now yep. to any, okay. Right, that, it'd basically that, so, be another cloud service. Okay, so they're going to speak to each other. There's going to be a, a a way for, you know, old classic computers to understand what quantum computers are saying and doing. Yes, exactly. I mean, I, I think, I mean, you use, well, there are some specialized programming languages. What is it? Q-sharp, I think, is Microsoft's quantum computing language. But they're also they're libraries for very, very familiar programming languages uh, that you can write your code in to develop quantum circuits um, and then run them on uh, quantum computers elsewhere, made by different companies, um, both the big names like you know IBM, Google, Microsoft, but also uh, some specialized companies uh, are out there building quantum computers. But it sounds like the number one thing here is the speed. Is that really the promise? Yes. Yes. And, and without the speed, is there any benefit to it? I think there's an intellectual benefit. I mean, I think the notion of, of what it teaches us about what information means is very nice. important. Nice. And it's fed back into the heart of physics. I mean, there's some... Quantum mechanics is a bunch of calculational rules, and a lot of people... I mean it's hard for humans to understand what it's actually describing. And there's been sort of a reverse effect where thinking about information, speaking as the College of Informatics, has helped 
make the foundations of quantum mechanics clearer. So I think there's always going to be intellectual stuff and head-scratching stuff, even if we can't build fast machines. But we will build fast quantum computers. All the rage, it seems like, now in the news and the financial world is blockchain and crypto. And so what does quantum computing and the speed with, you know, unlocking everything <laughs> do with that world? Right. Quantum computing, uh, assuming we can build a large enough one to do the computations, can completely break the security of blockchains that basically all cryptocurrencies are based on. You would be able to generate new uh, blocks uh, very fast. And basically the way blockchain works is that the longest blockchain wins. So there's always this competition uh, with multiple groups trying to add the next block to the blockchain because you get a reward in cryptocurrency for doing so. And that's how your transactions get added. These people, miners, uh, bundle them up, put them in a block, and try to compute the correct block the fastest. Quantum computing would give you an unmatchable advantage right. in that. Right. And if you can uh, win that race, you can do things like unwind transactions, double spend your bitcoins, and so forth. Wow, that doesn't sound very good for the for the crypto world. It's disruptive. That's exactly what I was going to say. Okay. Talk about a disruptive technology. The capital exactly. D. Let's bring all this you know home a little bit to us here at the College of Informatics. What are we doing here in this area right now? Well, James, should we write a grant proposal to get a couple of D-Wave machines down the hall here in Griffin Hall? Probably. <laughs> that could be fun. Probably not. It's just a teacher course. I think it needs to get into the curriculum mm -hmm. in computer science. I mean, companies who aren't even tech companies are thinking about quantum computing. They're preparing for the day where blockchain breaks, where everything that relies on crypto breaks prepping for the quantum world. And our, our students need to do that with skill sets. And one of the limiting factors in the growth of quantum technology is the skill sets from students. Right. As a university, one of the exciting things about quantum computing is you can do a lot of it with just a computer science background and some relatively elementary math, say linear algebra. Some of the code you can write with these toolkits um, is accessible. So I'd love our students to come out with a, with a taste of that. It's part of looking forward. It's part of what we do at NKU. Excellent. On the security side, uh, we do teach students about post-quantum cryptography. So we don't really explain how quantum computation works in detail, but, but we give the sort of a broad sense of what it is and how it provides these speed-ups. And this is leading to all this research in post-quantum cryptography and causing people to use longer cryptographic keys. Current quantum computers are, are a long way from breaking modern key sizes. They would need to have uh, around a million times as many qubits, and the error correction facilities would at least need to be 100 times better than they currently are. But even with that, the National Security Agency and National Institute of Technology have issued standards for post-quantum uh, key sizes, so people are already starting to uh, adapt to make it take a longer time for quantum computing to catch up while people are developing these newer encryption algorithms that won't depend on problems that are easily, rapidly solved by quantum computers. How far off are we from this being a reality for our everyday lives? I'd say we don't really know yet. I uh, recently read the National Academy of Sciences re report on quantum computing, and they were tasked to give a timeline, and they basically said that they couldn't. What <laughs> was their summary? That there's just certain breakthroughs we need in things like quantum error correction 
and just how to physically build a quantum computer. But of course, people are still doing proof of concepts now. A lot of companies are, are investing in that, even at the small scale. There's, there's currently a wide variety of approaches to physically build them, and we don't really know which of those will be successful at scaling up, if any, or whether we'll need to find new uh, physical principles to build them on. So we don't really know yet. So we had a group of visitors here in the College of Informatics from uh, the Fidelity Center for Advanced Technology in Boston. And I, I stumbled across uh, their work where they were using uh, quantum computation to simulate uh, securities. They were doing an optimization problem. What's the right mix of pretend stocks to optimize returns in a portfolio? Uh, it, it's got zillions of variables. And you want to do something called annealing to find a solution. And that's one thing that quantum computers may be very good at long before they can sort of break blockchain and, and crypto. So you see companies starting to get their feet wet in that, starting to invest in that and train their people in that. It's obviously going to be a very disruptive technology. How do you know when you're getting a return? You know, if, if you're starting to invest in it, is it just for the expectation that you might, you know, land something at, at some point? Or is there... Uh, an actual expectation of, of return and getting some money to make off of it within the next 10 to 15 years. It's down the road, but people invest with long horizons occasionally. No, that's, that's true. That's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. That's exactly right. And, and certainly uh, the National Security Agency uh, is heavily investing, as are the intelligence agencies in China and Russia and other uh, major countries, because they don't want to be the last person who, who's able to break all encryption. <laughs> no doubt. I would imagine where, where they are on the, the progress uh, is probably very guarded. Yeah, I think right, right now that uh, ability is the main thing that's attracting funding to it, but because I believe we will have post-quantum cryptography in the next decade or two. Uh, quantum computing needs to find other solutions. There's several types of quantum computers, and, and the big division is between digital and analog. Okay. And, and that used to be true with classical computers. I don't know if anybody still has a, an analog traditional computer anymore, but in the mid-20th century, they could solve uh, certain physics problems, differential equations and such, faster than digital computers at the time. Uh, but digital computing uh, sort of re ran away, uh, growing rapidly in performance, following Moore's law. And so analog classical computers were sort of dropped. But with quantum, we're not really at that point yet. And so mainly I've been talking about the digital ones because that's where you get the focus on attacking encryption and mm -hmm. blockchain mm -hmm. and the like. Whereas Kevin was talking about simulated annealing, which is something a, a, a analog quantum computer can do. I'm so I'm so overwhelmed by the brain power that you guys bring to the table here. And just to talk about this, I could sit here uh, the entire day, but I know that we all have other things to do. In the next five years, any major breakthroughs, anything that'll change the playing field for a, a major company to come out and say, we've done X, and this has changed well, everything? Google did make such a claim in 2018 of uh, so-called quantum supremacy which means that, that you've performed a computation on a quantum computer faster than any classical computer could do. Uh, but that claim is still being disputed. Quantum primacy or quantum advantage, trying to find a, a better noun than supremacy right now for that. But it will always be contested. I, I read an article this month about uh, a group at a high-performance computing center who said, like, well, uh, when we do it using this algorithm, our result is faster than Google's. And so... Right. I mean, so far, these examples uh, 
right, of problems where a, a quantum computer seems to be, you know, millions of times faster than a, than a classical computer are basically sort of almost like simulating physics problems. So it's like you're almost cheating. You're physics doing physics, right? Of course, <laughs> somewhat faster. But yet, then you have people come back with conventional computers and, and try and beat it. I suspect we'll see more claims of quantum supremacy and more disputes about it. I'm not sure if we'll get a clear-cut answer in the next five years or not. I, I think there's this always going to be this empirical race, and, and that's that's going to be fun to watch, right. Uh, right. actually benchmarking real quantum computers on more and more realistic problems. So those are the headlines we're going to read over the few years. They're going to be dramatic. The brain power in the cafe today is an overdrive. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I've just been uh, so humbled just sitting here with you both talking about this uh, awesome topic, and, and I hope that our listeners have, have benefited from it as well. I'm sure that they have. Thank you both. Thank you, Mike. It's so fun. Thank you, Mike. For that. Informatics Cafe is presented by Informatics Plus, the outreach arm of Northern Kentucky University's College of Informatics. Hosted by Mike Nitardi, produced and edited by Chris Brewer. Music and recording by Aaron Zlatkin, recorded at the Informatics Audio Studio in Griffin Hall.